So Paul really starts to change his tune here in chapter 3. He's been so encouraging, and he's been so thankful for this church. <clears throat> he's been, uh, we heard about the role models that we were to follow, how well they had served him, how well Timothy and Epaphroditus had served. Uh, but Paul kind of changes his tune here in this, pastor, and he's in, in this passage, and he's talking about something that he's extremely passionate about extremely passionate about. He is um, using some very strong language. It may not sound like strong language because in the English it translates, uh, but he's using some strong language and he's using and he's repeating something. You see there in verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to write the same thing to you and that's no problem. So this is something that Paul feels very, very strongly about, even to the point of using some very harsh language, even calling names, right? He calls these people dogs and evildoers, and who he's talking about are these Judaizers. But you can relate to this in that, or maybe you can't, because I know no one in here would act this way. But if you've ever been to a Little League baseball game, uh, you know that when people are invested in something and they're passionate about it, I've never acted that way or overreacted at a Little League game, but... Actually, I have. Whenever Christy puts her hand on my forearm, I know I've crossed the line. So I just back up and shut my mouth. But we can do that too. We can, when we're passionate about something, we use strong language, right? We, we're we're going to go maybe a little bit over the top. And that's what Paul does because this truth and this warning is very, very important to him. He's repeating it. He probably had already told them this in person. And now he's putting it back in the letter and he's saying, it's no problem for me to write this to you again because this is important. And he calls these people dogs. These people are saying, there's a group of people nearby that are saying to this church, you must be circumcised to please God. And that really drives Paul crazy. Anytime anyone says Christ plus something, that drives Paul crazy. And he's very, very upset towards these people who are telling this church you must be circumcised in addition to trusting Christ. And so he calls those people dogs, evil doers. Uh, and it's, this is one of those words, this dog word, that uh, it's, we don't think of that as a big... Actually, we call people our dogs. We're saying something, that's good. He's my buddy. He's my bro, right? Not so here. We have to import ourselves in this context. In this context, dogs were not domesticated. They weren't pets. They didn't enrich a family, right? People didn't keep dogs. This was, in this culture, this was a bad thing to be a dog. Dogs roamed the streets, uh, ate leftover trash, would randomly attack people. And so you had to watch out for dogs constantly. So that phrase of watch out for the dogs, that would mean something to them. And calling someone a dog was not just like a flippant insult. And I'm trying to be careful because I know there's things, you know, when the kids are growing up, there's, there's words. They're not cuss words, but they're not supposed to say them. You know, like we don't say shut up, right? We don't, we don't call people stupid, right? Remember talking through that with your little ones? And this calling someone a dog is worse than calling somebody stupid. And see, even I'm having to be careful with the words that are floating around in my head right now, and I'm thinking, how do I, I have a hard time even illustrating it for you, right? Because you have to import yourself into this context. If it's calling someone a dog is worse than calling them stupid, it is harsh language. And it's coming from Paul. It's coming from the preacher. It's coming from the missionary. 
So, anytime we see something in Scripture and it's, we see it over and over and over or it's repeated and Paul says, let me repeat this again, and then he ramps up the language, we really have to make sure we have our heart and our head wrapped around that truth. Do you get it? Are you with me? We really want to pay attention and make sure that what he's talking about this is important. It's very important. These, these people that are harassing the church are focusing on an outward action. They're saying there must be something else that you have to do to please God. And if you're wondering if how Paul feels about this by just calling someone a dog, flip over to Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter 5 verse 12. Look at what he tells the Galatian church there. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to see it here. Actually, we'll look at 11 and 12. Here's what he thinks about these guys that are harassing the church in Galatia. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. Now, if you're still wondering... What's he talking about? Circumcision, emasculation. Um, if you will meet in the back later, Pastor Kyle will explain all that to you, okay? Uh, we won't want to go into that. But most of you understand what's going on here, right? You understand this harsh language. This is, he, he really did just say that in a letter. It's in your Bible. That's how he feels about people who want to tell the church something plus Jesus. Jesus plus something else to please God. That's how strongly we must battle in our own heart and be careful and watch out for anybody that tells us that you need Jesus plus something else to please him, okay? Now, here's, I want to teach you this word, and you, some of you may already know this word, imputation, the doctrine of imputation. And a doctrine of imputation, and this is a big word, don't be scared off by it. Doctrines are just things we see over and over and over in Scripture because they're true. And anytime you see something over and over and over, it's important, Right? And it's a doctrine of imputation. This is the idea that a, uh, Adam's sin was imputed or transferred, is another word to say that, transferred into humanity. Okay? And then uh, our Christian sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's uh, righteousness is imputed or transferred to us. Okay? And this is going to be important because it's going to show us if, you don't, if, if we don't get imputation, we can begin to think differently about how God has loved us and how he has saved us. And we need to be clear about it. It'll also help us to value this, value Christ more, because Paul's going to go, he's going to start talking about value here in a minute. But we need to understand that Adam's sin was imputed to us. We didn't ask for it, but Adam's sin was imputed into humanity. A Christian sin is imputed onto Christ. It's transferred onto Christ. And his righteousness is transferred to us. Okay, we need to talk in that language because we don't want to mess this up. You think about a courtroom illustration, and God is the judge. He has not just shown us favor. He has not just offered clemency, if you know what that word means. He, he has not just let us slide by, okay? God is not a God. He is loving, Numbers 14 tells us, but he is also just. He did not let us slide by. 
there was a justification that took place. A, a just judge wouldn't just let somebody go because he felt like being nice to them. Then he wouldn't be just, would he? But there has been a decision and an action where the judge has seen evidence and let the trial go through and we have been proven unguilty, not guilty because there was a just punishment that was made on to Christ. Did make, does that make sense? You following me? So imputation. We, we have not just been let go. Now turn to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Look at Isaiah 53. It's a great uh, summary of what has happened when Adam's sin is transferred to us, Christ's righteousness has been transferred to us, and our sin transferred to Christ. Look at what, look at what happened here. This is not... God just casually letting us go. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus. It was his will to crush Jesus when he has put him into grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, that's us. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteousness of one servant, of one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. He shall bear their iniquities. God put our iniquity and the punishment for it on Jesus. And this would make sense to Paul because he had grown up Jew. And so God's people will have been uh, very accustomed to taking, raising up lambs, raising up goats, some animal that they could take unblemished to the priest in exchange for their sin. And what the priest would do is he would lay his hands on the scapegoat and then cut its throat. And that would pay for the sins of them for that week or that month. And guess what? What you got to do next month? Find another one, take it, have it transferred, imputed onto that scapegoat. You've heard that word, scapegoat. And they cut its throat and it appeases God for their sin. So do you see how this bur could be burdensome and wearisome to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back to please God? And yet for us, that's already been done. That's already been completed. You've heard Jesus called the Lamb of God, and that is where we get that phrase, the Lamb of God. He has been the one who appeased God's wrath and took our iniquity. God put his wrath on him. It was pleased him to crush him. Pleased him to crush him. Now, God, through Christ, is the only one that can impute righteousness. Let me say that again. Christ is the only one. God is the only one in Christ who can impute or give you righteousness. Pastors can't do it. Staff members can't do it. Elders can't do it. Deacons can't do it. Going to the right kind of church doesn't give you righteousness. Being a part of the right kind of group, reading the right books, reading enough of the Bible, studying the Bible more, those things don't make you righteous. The only way to have righteousness imputed into you is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's it. And no other way. Now, I want you to look at Romans chapter 4. Whenever you think about Paul getting really hyped up towards these Judaizers and really angry towards them, 
Look at what he says in Romans. Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at 3 through 5. And then we'll look quickly at 9 through 11. Now think about somebody, these people telling Paul, you, you must be circumcised to please God. After knowing what Paul knows about Christ's imputed righteousness. Look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And I can just hear Paul going, take that Judaizer dog. He was counted righteousness before he was circumcised. So he was already righteous. righteous. Why? Because of what God had done. Because God imputed his righteousness to Abraham. He counted him righteous. And that's what he does. He counts us, imputes us with righteousness. And no one else can do that. And there's nothing else needed. You hear me say that? There's nothing else needed. Nothing else. Christ alone. So Paul says, I don't place any confidence. I don't place any confidence in my heritage. I don't place any confidence in the fact that I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. All that stuff. I've done it all. I kept the law. I was perfect. I was blameless, he says. I did everything right. I hit all the marks to the law. And he says in this passage, I count that as rubbish. I count that as rubbish. Now, here's another word that doesn't really translate well into English because this rubbish that he's talking about, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word sounds very benign. When we're in England, they call trash rubbish. And I always think, wow, that's a nice way of saying stinky old stuff that's rotting. Uh, rubbish doesn't sound harsh. But this is the word that they would have used for manure. Uh, this is the word they would use for anything that was rotting. Rotting flesh, okay? So understand, this is not a nice way of saying, I just don't think those things are important. All the things, my heritage, all the things I've done, all the things that I've accomplished towards God to please him, I'm not just saying they're not important. I'm saying they're a pile of manure, okay? And that sounds weird coming from the pastor. There's so many words I can't say in this setting, but you know what I'm talking about right? That's what he would have used here. Paul feels very strongly about this when he says, my confidence is not in any of the things that I've accomplished. So all the things that you think, man, I need to do this to please God, or I have done this to please God in the past, or he must be really happy with me because this week I did these things. I've been so disciplined. I've been treating my kids better and my wife better. God must be pleased. Church, he is only pleased with us because of what Christ has done. Because he took 
our sin, our shame, disappointment, failure. That's it. And he, Paul says, that is a pile of manure compared to knowing Christ. Compared to knowing Christ. Then he does something a little bit different here. He adds on to that. He's not just saying that compared to Christ, all the things I try to do to please God are rubbish or manure. He says, everything I count, everything that I would have counted as gain or value in my life, anything that I would have counted as gain or value in my, my, my life is a pile of rotten, rotting manure. How can he say that? Whenever I teach this to students, um, whenever I teach this to students, I always bring a backpack and I throw a few things in the backpack that represent things that are valuable to me. Okay? And so I've put a few things in this backpack that are of great gain to me. They're important to me. And I'm thinking in terms of Paul saying, uh, anything I consider gain in my life is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus, compared to knowing the fact that uh, the Lamb of God took my sin and there's no other way I can be counted righteous. Compared to that, these are rubbish. And so I just brought, I, I always pull out, when I'm at a camp or something where I pull out teaching students, I put out a picture of my family, right? Like everybody always says, oh, your kids are so cute and your wife is so beautiful and how did you get her? <laughs> and uh, let's see, I like uh, hobbies. Um, hobbies are fun. They add value to my life, I think, you know, and so if I can find it in here, let's see. I play golf. Love to play golf. Uh, Christy and I started playing uh, together last year, and that's valuable time that we get to spend together. I love playing all sports. Uh, I also love to hunt and fish, so I got my uh, hunting license and my fishing license here. Those are all things that are valuable to me. They add value to my life. Um, also, I love food. I love all kinds of food, but there's only one drink that's really the, the champion of all drinks. It's the sweet nectar of Waco, Texas, Dr. Pepper. All, Dr. Pepper brings value to my life. And I have a real healthy obsession with uh, chips and salsa. And this is my wife's homemade salsa. It's wonderful. We'll be raffling this off in about 30 minutes after the service. So don't touch this after the service. So you think about what you would put in a backpack that would represent things that bring value to your life. Added value. Can we say, compared to knowing Christ, the knowledge that he took on my sin, and there's no other way I have righteousness, there's no other way I make it to heaven, to God, and to please him in any way if he doesn't stand in the way of my punishment. Compared to knowing that, that is considered loss, rubbish. And so, I think that what happens when we begin to wake up and realize these are not bad things, but compared to Jesus, I can, I can do away with these things. If it meant I lost Jesus, I would lose these first. That's the heart that says, I love him. I appreciate what he's done so much so that I can lose anything. And what that does for us in every other religion, you have to continue to come back and please their God. Continually come back and please. And the, and the Israelites would have known that well. For us, it's over. It's been accomplished. There's no coming back to please him. No coming back to please Even when we fail, there's no coming back to please him. 
God is both just and both loving and valuing him over all these things will help us persevere. And that's what he says here at the end of the passage, that I would suffer and die and be with him all the way to the end. This kind of love and this kind of valuing what Jesus has done for us, him counting us as righteousness does something for us as it keeps us from working so hard to try and please him. You see that? Trusting him and knowing what imputation means helps us because it keeps us from trying to work so hard just to please him. And you may be walking in some shame, some bad guilt, the guilt that says you're bad. Not that you did something bad, but you're just bad. And that's going to lead to despair. But a guilt that is good guilt, a good shame, is one that makes you feel bad for doing something wrong. Not that you're bad, that you did something wrong. And the biblical way to deal with that is to repent and then have joy. What does God want you to do with those feelings? Repent and have joy. So that is what, that's where we move into is, it, is that we striving versus resting. Striving versus resting equals joy. If you find yourself striving to please God still in this tornado of doubt and shame, wondering, is he really pleased with me? He's pleased with you because of Jesus. Not anything you and I can do when Christ's imputed righteousness to us becomes less valued will always revert back to try and work for his approval. When Christ's imputed righteousness to us becomes less valuable, we always revert back to trying and working to please him, doing whatever we can. Church, there's no stipulations. There's not a list in this new covenant. There's not a bunch of stipulations, really. It's have faith, believe, trust in Christ's finished work. There are no other stipulations. There are none. Knowing him is that valuable. Blessed persons are ones that rest and rejoice in this truth of Christ's imputed righteousness, and it's that valuable. I want you to look, go back to Romans 4. Let's look at one more passage there. Romans 4. This is that middle section that we skipped. And I hope that God is transforming us as a church into people who are are joyful in all circumstances, are able to rejoice because we know things like the fact that Christ has given us and transferred his righteousness and God transferred our sin to him and we haven't just been let go, but we've been counted righteousness. Look at verse six, Romans chapter four, verse six. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts as righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us take a deep breath and rest again in what you've done for us. Keep us from walking to shame. Keep us from walking to having to work for your approval. But instead, God, help us remember this so that we respond in worship, so that we live rightly in worship because of what you've done on our behalf. We were hopeless and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and you've been good to us. You intercede for us. 
Thank you for transferring the wrath of our iniquities onto Jesus. Thank you for giving us and counting us righteousness because of what he has done. We're so thankful, and as we move into this Lord's Supper time, we want to remember it again. God, you're so good to give us so much help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.